Well, hello, it's Pastor Carson from Calvary Tabernacle. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. We hope that it's a blessing to you, whether you're catching one of the Sunday or Wednesday messages, or maybe you're jumping on to listen to one of the Saturday snapshots. We're doing everything we can right here in the beautiful Fountain Square area of Indianapolis to try to reach and connect and disciple people towards Jesus Christ. Enjoy what you listen to, and I hope that it's a benefit to your life. God is a God of detail. We talked about this last week. His word is filled with incredible detail. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5. They, they serve as a copy and a shadow. Who serve unto the example. And the shadow of heavenly things. Remember we read this last week. Moses admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern showed in the mount. Right? Every detail and every dimension of the tabernacle and the pieces of the furniture in accordance with all that the Lord commanded. It matters to God what we do and how we live our lives. Nudge two or three people. Give them a little chicken elbow and say, it does matter. Okay? Come on, little chicken elbow. You know what I'm talking about. Nudge them. Give them a little smile so you know you love them. But it it does matter. It does matter how we live. Does matter how we talk to one another. Does matter whether or not you keep a good attitude. Don't tell me you got the Holy Ghost and you can't even keep a good attitude. I'm not going to say you're not going to have bad days. You're going to snap every now and then. You're going to lose it. You're going to have regret. But then you got to repent and move on. Most of the time you need to know you can't really repent unless you go to them and make it right. But (laughs) Tabernacle teaches us the importance of the presence of God being the central focus in our lives through prayer. Okay? I'm about to get here and I'm going to let you be seated in just a minute. Through the tabernacle we see purpose, power, and pattern. There's an example here for prayer. We understand about how to enter into the presence of God, engage with his presence, how to engage with his presence. We are able to see the attributes of God, the blessings of anointing, the power that is accessible. How many know God is accessible? He is accessible. The tabernacle becomes a place of communion and commitment and commandment. And there's a structured layout for deeper dimension in prayer. Structure is not your enemy. For some of you like some of you, you're enti- I've got one of my closest friends, his entire life is on spreadsheets. This is a true statement. If I tell you your, his name, so many of you would know him. Lives on spreadsheets. I'm not there. And I got news for I don't want to be there. I don't want to go there, okay? Some of you, you know who you are. All of the same color socks have to be next to each other. Yeah. All the blue shirts here. White, yeah. Some of you getting really excited. You're like, I was waiting on somebody to preach this. <laughs> we don't have to be that structured there, but it's okay if you are, as long as you don't drive yourself and others crazy. But I will tell you, structure in prayer is helpful. All right? Not having a pattern causes us to risk miss- missing out on the fullness of his presence. 
So what did we talk about last week? Somebody shouted out. Anybody remember? The gates. That's right. We talked about entering into the gates. And the only way we walk through is through Christ. We come into his courts. We come into his presence. We've got to have thanksgiving and we've got to have praise. We talked about relationship, access, praise, and worship. All right? Now, we're walking into the outer court today. Everybody yell the outer court. We're walking into the outer court. We don't have time to get to anything except for one thing. And the reason I'm saying we don't have time is because I want to take time to talk about the altar today. I want to take time to talk about the altar. For me to do anything else, it would be me trying to rush through the altar. And if there is one thing we better not rush through, it's the altar. We've got to take an evaluation of the altar. All right? So, Exodus 27, this is our text and then I'm going to let you sit down. Praise God. My mom would be after me. She's going to watch this service later today. She's going to tell me, you made the people stand too long. She said, let your little intro be real short. Let those people sit down. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Exodus 20, 27. Okay. Thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. Lord, we're asking you to help us. We need your wisdom. We need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your help. I pray that you'd make the soil of every heart and every mind ready for the seeds of the word today. Whether you want me to teach or preach or however this is supposed to unfold, I just want your will to be done here today. I'm asking you would help us in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said amen. 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 God bless you. You may be seated. What a beautiful crowd is here today. Thank you for being here. It's amazing to think we've got hundreds of kids and the new members and people all around the building learning today that aren't even in the sanctuary. It's exciting to see uh, what God is doing. And so I honor you for being in the house of the Lord. The brazen altar is what we're going to talk about here today. This is the place of sacrifice. Brother Romine, this is the place where we would in the New Testament church speak to repentance. What it really means. What it, what it really was for them. What it really is for now. It was that place where sacrifice was made and where blood was shed. Exodus 27, if you read down through the next seven verses, you can find in verses 1 through 8 the dimensions, the details there, the, the specifics, the building of acacia wood or shidem wood and the covering of the bronze for the brazen altar. Some would say bronze or brass. The, the way that it would present itself. But, but some details that we need to know. Now, there are men and women, Brother Ross and I were talking about this the other day. Uh, this was... Brother, I loved, I, in fact, I almost called you yesterday. He said, my kids said this thing has been sliced and diced and fried and bore, whatever you said on how many ways you've taught the tabernacle. And, and um, I love the tabernacle. Let me tell you, be very personal with you. One of the reasons I so love the tabernacle, the tabernacle plan as a whole changed my ability to pray. It changed the way I pray. A major part, Brother Sleva, of why I'm able to be pastoring this church today is because the structured process of the tabernacle plan being taught to me changed my prayer. 
What do you mean it changed it? It affected, it altered. It gave me structure and consistency. Okay? The altar was critical. It was the first piece of furniture that the, that the individuals would encounter when they walked into the outer court. They come through the tabernacle gate. They come through the gate. And then they find this made of acacia wood overlaid with bronze. We talked about this last week. Does it really matter what material it's made of? Let me pause. Modern Pentecostal church. It matters what your altar's made of. And while... Some of you don't know this. Let me give you a little secret. These steps up here, these are not wood. This is concrete. Wow. Imagine the way they poured this. The only part that's wood, some of you are thinking, no, that middle's wood because I remember crawling up under. That part right there, the rest of it is concrete. And we're going to talk here about the way certain things are built. But when we speak about the altar, how many know that if I say we're going to have a time of altar, in our minds, we come to the front of a building because we believe in dramatic conversion. We believe in confession and dramatic conversion that you come to an altar, you take a step, but how many know you can also build an altar right there in your pew? That's not concrete, that's wood and padding, right? How many know you can build an altar in your car? Many of you have built altars in hospitals. Altars are built with what you have, where you are. But the dimensions of this altar were very specific, given by God to Moses in the mount while seeking him. And some of the dimensions that we're seeing, there were the rings and the poles for when it was time to move the altar. Now, I've got to tell you, I could preach the entire message on the ability to have a moving altar. Because if your altar stays here, so will your relationship. Don't that sound like it would preach? Mm. Five cubits square, seven and a half feet wide and deep and four and a half feet tall. It was hollow with that mesh grate in the middle for the wood and for the fire. Because what good is an altar that cannot consume? What good is it for... For the altar to look as though it's effective but have no true ability. It's no more different than if we in the modern church would say we are sorry but feel no genuine repentance. It was built up on the earth so that it stood above the rest of the courtyard. It was larger. It was elevated. The horns on the four altars were there for serving and for refuge. And we're going to talk through that. The securing and the refuge, the horns of the altar. How many have ever heard, heard that statement, grabbing hold of the horns of the altar? Wave at me if you've ever heard that before. Yeah, about half to three quarters of the, of the church have heard that. And, and it was the blood that was applied to the horns of the altar by the priests. We find reference to the horns of the altar. Psalm 118, what did the psalmist write in verse 27? God is the Lord, which hath showed us light, buying the sacrifice with, corns, with cords even to the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar provided a place of refuge and safety for who? Those who were accused of a crime. Those who had, who had been accused could run. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we watch Adonijah. Adonijah who himself 
set up as a king of Israel when Solomon was anointed as king. He was clinging to the horns of the altar and he finds mercy there when clinging to the horns of the altar. But there is a story that's immediately going to follow with Joab and and we don't have time. But the horns of the altar were not meant to be used as a place of faking it. You can read a story that immediately follows this story of Adonijah where another runs, though he had spilled innocent blood. David had said, don't let my gray head fall to the ground without him being taken care of. I I might die, but I want him, I want Joab taken care of. Listen, the altar has never been a game. The altar has never been a game. It's always been about bloodshed, death, sacrifice, repentance. It's a plan of redemption. How many are glad that it went from a plan of an annual? Hmm. Not just just an annual plan, but a plan that would not not utilize a, a lamb that I could bring, but a lamb that he had to send. That's what it's all leaning toward. It's all, it's all working towards. Let's, let's just give a brief uh, introduction here, some importance and brief history of the altar. It's been around since the, uh, since the Garden of Eden in some, in some respects. It comes from the root word meaning to slaughter for sacrifice. Some of you are thinking, my goodness, Pastor, I didn't even eat breakfast. And you talk about all this. But the altar was a place of action. It was a place of death. Altars were built to be used. First couple of brothers had altars. Remember Cain and Abel? One of them brought a worthy sacrifice and one of them did not. Hebrews 11 and 4 tells us that by faith Abel bought a more acceptable offering to God. Although Abel was long dead, the Bible said that he speaks By the example of faith and even after he was gone, the Lord would say his blood speaks. Let's talk about some Genesis, that that first book, that book of beginnings, some examples of altars right out of the gate. Brother Herbst, it would be our historical analysis of the text. Noah, after the great flood... He's thankful for his exodus from the flood that God has kept them. How many know that the Lord in the New Testament, we recognize the saving by water. It happened first with Noah and his family. But when he comes off of the ark, what does he do? He builds an altar. Okay. If we're not careful, all of our altars are about the sacrifice to try to get us back in a line. And we don't build enough altars of thanksgiving for fresh starts. Abraham, when he received his covenant promise from God on Mount Moriah, God provides a ram. He spares the life of his son. What a story that was. He builds an altar there. How about old Jacob building altars at Salem and Bethel when God appeared to him? Isaac, after redigging of the wells of his father in Genesis 26, he builds it. Now these are, these are probably dirt and stone altars. And those of you that don't get bored, hang with me. These are probably dirt and stone altars. They're built as memorials, places where God visited mankind. I am so thankful that God has not ceased 
to visit mankind. I do not want to miss the opportunity to say thank you for still meeting with mankind. Thank you for being available. However, in the brazen altar that was different from these of dirt and stone built by Moses, we see God's plan coming more clearly into view. There is this plan to take a sinful man and bring him into right standing with God. We're we're beginning to see this glimpse, giving giving the unrighteous access to a righteous God. We begin to see a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ continuing to play out in the tabernacle as the Israelites being compelled to offer that animal sacrifice that was what? Without blemish and without defect. So Christ offered himself, himself as the spotless and the perfect and the sinless lamb. So the brazen altar itself can be considered a type of the cross of Christ or Calvary. If I be lifted up, what did he say? I will draw all men unto me. I've heard theologians squabble about this. I have heard preachers try to quote the, 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 the Greek about this. I, I have seen people try to deal with this concept. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to the... This is where I stand on this. I don't think Christ ever questioned whether he was getting out of the grave. I don't think if I be lifted up was ever about whether or not Christ would actually resurrect. But he knew there will be a process that falls on the people. But if we lift him up, if we can follow the pattern of the cross, because how many know it's a lot easier to rejoice in a cross that he has suffered? It's much easier to do that than it is to pick up our own. Oh, yeah. It is easier to to rejoice about the fact that he died for us than it is for us to die out to our own flesh. Amen. The cords would bind the sacrifice like the nails would bind Christ. It was yet not the nails that would hold him to the cross. It was his love. And when you look at the reflection or the type and the shadow of the altar, it is a mere reflection of what is coming. Because what Christ is giving, what God is giving in the Old Testament, speaking towards and looking towards, he's always broadcasting towards what is yet to come. And what is yet to come is greater than what is. Hear that. What is yet to come is always greater than what is. That's why we have to be very careful if we get too nostalgic about the good old days. We walk out of the pattern of Scripture. We reflect. We honor. We give thanksgiving. But we've got to know that God is always a progressive. He is always moving. It was never about the wilderness. It was always about the promised land. It was never about the tab- this tabernacle to be the long-standing plan. It was about the reality that there was coming a day when Christ would be everything that that... It was always looking forward. That's why we know our very best church services. Last Sunday night was the most power that I can remember, the most powerful move of God since I've been here in seven months. But it does not scratch the surface to what we are looking 
It doesn't scratch the surface to what we're looking toward because we're looking toward a place where we will live in a land. We celebrated Sister Koppel's uh, life and her home going the other night. And as we did, we began to talk about the glory of heaven and seeing in color what she has only read in black and white. And I will tell you, the altar at its best was leading towards God and an altar in the new, in the new church or the modern Pentecostal movement. But this at its best is leading us forward. Somebody yell out, I'm not stopping. Yeah, you're not supposed to. Don't stop. But you do need to know the shedding of blood was necessary. Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is the blood. And I've given it to you for the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by life. Leviticus 17, 11, it's the, the, the life of the body. It's in the blood. I gave you the blood for an altar to purify you. There were different types of sacrificial offerings. There were voluntary and there were mandatory. <laughs> How many know it's easier to just give of your own than to be forced to give? Let me give you a modern day example, okay? Giving a blessing to someone versus taxes. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. Somebody might work for the IRS. But for most of you, if I say IRS, you... <laughs> different, right? It's different to give voluntarily than it is to have to do it. But ladies and gentlemen, what we're working toward this morning is the understanding. When it comes to a relationship with God, it is twofold. You must volunteer, but it is mandatory. Isn't that something? It's mandatory, but he gave you free will to do it. How many know it would be easier if you could just drag your friends to the altar? And there used to be a day we did that. Oh, you come. I don't want to, you come to the altar. Some of us had grandparents that we were going to get the Holy Ghost whether we wanted it or not. Go, 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 go. Anybody ever see somebody get gum knocked out of their mouth? Come on, I grew up in a southern, in a southern church where they'd shake it into you. That's so why we have sessions to teach what works and what doesn't. But they were, they were genuine. They were genuine. And I will tell you, let me pause here and say this. We do need a little tenacity about it. We do need a little We shouldn't act like what happens at the altar doesn't matter. COVID is not able to restrict the power of an altar. I feel a little pause, so I'm going to take it. I know it's just concrete, I know it's just carpet, but there is something about it then and there is something about it now. When people make up their mind and they come to an altar and they say, I gotta have some repentance, I gotta have some sacrifice, I know it's mandatory, but I want you to know it's voluntary. I want you to, nobody's making me, nobody's forcing me, but I see that I've gotta walk. So when I walk, I line my voluntary up with his mandatory. That's good teaching right there. I don't normally say that, but man, I feel like it. I got to get what my will is in line with his will. That's what the tabernacle was teaching us. There were voluntary wills that they, or voluntary sacrifices that they could make. There's a few of them. You can see them. You can read through them. 
burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering. See what they bring? Turtle doves, rams without blemish, fruit of the field, baked bread for the grain offering, giving thanks for his provision. Peace offering, that sacrifice of thanksgiving, that unblemished animal. But when it comes to the mandatory, sin offering was mandatory. No choice. No choice. No choice. It's for atonement. It's for purification. Depending on where you were, who you were, you had to bring a young bull, a male goat, a female goat, a pigeon. Anybody bring a pigeon? Thank you. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour based on one's financial standing. And there was a trespass offering mandatory. Exclusively a ram. Providing cleansing from the defiling of sins and atonement for the unintentional sins that require restitution or reimbursement to the offended party. Hmm. Let me say something here. There is a Matthew principle of reconciliation. There is a principle that has to happen. We have to work through this two ways. I've got to work through atonement. I can only work that through Christ. I can only work that through the sacrifice of that spotless lamb. I can only do that. But when it comes to me having a trespass against me or a trespass to someone else, I've got to do more than pray. He takes care of it. Well, that's quiet. For you know, 1 Peter 1.18, for you know that God paid ransom. He paid ransom. Let's do a little homework. Everybody that's got a Bible, 1 Peter. They'll put it on the screen too. 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. For as much as ye know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Then how were we? With the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's a reason why on Passover this year we will do communion as a church. The reason we moved it to to, pass, to Passover. Because I don't want inclement weather to be a reason that some people can't get here together to take communion. I don't want time of day or night to be a reason. we got to come together and we're going to take of the Lord's body. We're going to partake of it because it was His blood. His blood that saved us. Okay? It's just the truth. Him and Him alone. What's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 say? It was God's will. Mm, 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 mm. What made us holy? Only Him. Let's do it. Here we go. Hebrews, Hebrews 10 10. Those of you that don't want to turn, if it's not underlined or outlined in your Bible or highlighted on or little notes or something, maybe you should put my initials in the date so if I use it again, you can be like, you just used that. <laughs> Hebrews 10 10. By the which we, will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. What does that mean? From Hebrews until now. And from now until eternity. They were caught in this recycle process, Elder, where every year had to be a new ram. It had to be a new goat. It had to be a new lamb. It had to be a new pig. had to kill some. But he said, no more of that. You won't be able to find anything in your life. 
When you want to find atonement, it'll be in him. You'll have to look to Christ. Listen, from the best dressed to the homeless on the street, Jesus Christ. From the penthouse, my God. To the slums of the earth, Jesus Christ. From the seasoned saint to the newest visitor, Jesus Christ. It's in him. There is no other lamb but him. And I got to be honest, I know I'm getting excited, but I love him. I love that I know about him, and I love that he is the answer. Find somebody you haven't talked to yet and tell them he's the answer. Jesus is the only answer. He's the sacrifice. <sighs> my, my, my. So, the purpose, the power, the pattern of the altar. How many know, let me, let me, let me just, let me take a personal break here. How many have ever seen an altar, whether it was this altar whether it was an altar at a camp, whether it was an altar in a, in a different church, maybe a small little church somewhere that held about 40 or 50 people. But how many have ever seen an altar change a life? I remember, I remember the power of my personal altar, but I want to tell you about a story. When I, uh, when I really saw this in someone else, Brother Faulkner, I remember um, his name was Marky, okay? He was a pastor's son. He was a heathen. He was wild. He really was. Uh, and everybody knew it. And he was okay with that. I was just a young kid. I was a preteen. Uh, and we got into one of these old revivals. But I got to tell you, I grew up in like six, seven, eight-week revivals. Some of y'all like, blessing Lord. Blessing Lord. Remember, Pastor, what's in the past is in the past, and what's in the present is. <laughs> we were in this six-week revival, and uh, I remember him walking in. Evangelists that were there preaching were the strangers. Preaching, man, he's preaching about salvation. Pastor's wife, she got up to sing before, and she started singing, and uh, boy, I'm telling you. Holy Ghost filled that place. Spirit of God, just, you know, one of those services. Like last Sunday night, just one of those services. Everybody's crying. She's drinking about how God, he's the water that you'll drink and never thirst again. Anybody remember that? I give you Jesus. That's the song. I was a little kid. That was the song. I can still remember it. Because I can remember in the middle of that singing, her looking back at that prodigal. And I don't advise it. If you do it, I will talk to you after service. <laughs> Let me do that. But it was a small crowd. And it was the right time. And she looked his direction and sang the song. I still, I mean, I'm just a little kid. And I can remember, to this day, I can remember watching him get up out of his seat. That leather coat. Black leather coat that was so cool. Hair slicked back, jet black. Got up looking like the Fonz. <laughs> he 
he got up out of that seat and he started walking down the aisle. And how many know when a prodigal makes a move, it affects the whole church? He got up. He started walking down the front of that altar to the front of that altar. And he, he got there right at the front of that building. And oh, there, 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 there was no, there was no grate. There was no, there was no brazen altar. There was no smoke, but there was glory. I can still see him as a kid. I can still see him lifting those hands. And all of a sudden, I saw his shoulders begin to shake uncontrollably as he began to repent and ask God to forgive him. Tears, big tears coming down off of his cheeks. Today, now listen, that, was, that, that would have been uh, maybe 30 years ago. And now knowing he's a pastor, he pastors a church. And if you want to trace it back, you'll find it at an altar. Whew. And for everybody in this room, I need you to hear me right now. No one, no one has gone so far. No one has done so much that you can't take a handful of steps Ooh. and find his I want us to lift our hands. I feel a real, real unction. Ooh. Would you pray, God, let our, let our altars be open. Let our altars be life-altering. Come on, the altar, it changes. It changes the trajectory, not just of your life, but of your eternity. Praise God. There is a purpose, a power, a pattern. As we spoke of last week of the gate, we speak of for the altar. And I will tell you that the purpose of the altar was and is redemption. It was and it is redemption. Isaiah chapter 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace upon him. With his stripes we are healed. It's always been leading towards a Savior, towards Christ. From the Old Testament animal to the New Testament lamb of God. Romans chapter 5. This is another one I would love for you to have outlined or at least notated. So go to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man would some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us that while we were yet sinners. While most, if they would have counted the odds, would have looked at us and said, it's not worth it. He died for the ungodly. Sometimes we mix that up and think that he died for the godly. He died for the ungodly, knowing that we could only find it in him. The purpose of the altar was the exampling, the purpose for us this very day, and it is redemption. We must find it in him and in an altar. 
Remember those staves and those poles that I talked about, the carrying, the moving, the time of transport? Remember, the plan of redemption goes home with you. It goes home with you. If the altar at your house is turned into the idol of your television, Pastor said we got to throw it out. No, I didn't. I said, I said, if your altar, something's going to rule your life. There's this biblical word we just don't use enough, and it's moderation. We've got to learn how to balance our lives. We've got to remember that in Him we live. In Him we... Mm. How about, how about the, uh, the understanding here that there is, a, there is a power in the altar. Power in the altar comes through transparency. Everyone, Romans says, has sinned. Everybody. Let's, let's do a little example. Look, look around at the people around you. Just look around. And then say this, sinner. <laughs> this is team building. This is team building. Just a sinner. How many remember that? Just a sinner saved. Oh, how many's ever used that line? I remember growing up hearing those kind. You know, southern southern roots. You get these cliches. I hear that all the time. How you do it? Just a sinner saved by grace. It's like a tagline, right? Just a sinner saved by grace. Comb your hair. That's what they look at me most of the time. But we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 6. What did he say? I, I'm a man of unclean lips. What? How is it possible? Let people know that from the prophet to the preacher, from the laity to the leader, everybody is, in a sinner, is a sinner in need of a Savior. Everyone. When we see Jesus, we see the transparency needed of ourselves that we need a Savior. You cannot truly look into the altar without looking into your need for Christ. A true altar experience. How many know what I mean when I say a true altar experience? How many know there's a difference when it's genuine repentance? Now, some could argue the semantics of, of that and say, well, it's not repentance unless it's genuine. I'll never forget when, when retired missionary Dan Scott, we were taking up this offering, and, and, and it, we were talking about a sacrificial offering. Brother Scott looked at me, and he said, oh, Brother Carson, he said, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not really giving if it isn't sacrificial. I'm thinking, God, forgive me. How's a guy that was running 600 people in his church and walks in after he gets a vision of the Ecuador people he's never met before, doesn't speak one word. He goes and turns in his keys to that church in West Virginia and goes when there was no partners in missions and goes and paves a way for what's become one of the largest works in the entire Pentecostal movement looks at me and says there is no giving unless it's sacrificial. I will tell you this, when it comes to genuine repentance, what I mean is more than just saying I'm sorry. You know, nobody led, nobody led a, little, a little lamb to the altar and said, just kidding. 
I'm just kidding. That's Billy. I'm taking Billy home. I'm taking. Nah. No, no, no. My kids will never understand. My kids won't get it. You know what your kids won't understand today? Your kids won't understand if the altar is a game and not real. They won't. They don't understand. The altar is meant to be a genuine place of death in the Old Testament where blood was shed. And in the New Testament, it is a genuine place of sorrowful repentance and turning. What does it mean to repent? Turn. This is the hardest thing. Okay? This is the hardest thing. If we're not careful, the modern Pentecostal movement has rushed over repentance to get to Holy Ghost. Nobody says, what's the language? Come on, we've been, doing, I've been preaching conferences for a long time. How many got the Holy Ghost? Nobody ever says, how many repented? Why? Come on, why? If all heaven rejoices over repentance... Don't you think we should be a little more serious? Because that's when someone says, I'm, I'm turning. This is the way I've been facing. And it's always this. I've been facing the world. And I'm repenting. I'm repenting. It's like an army that says repent. Repent means an about face. It does not mean turn around. Okay? Because turn around means this. <laughs> but if we're not careful, that's how we treat the altar. A good place to cry, but not a great place to die. Uh-huh. And I'm going to evaluate right here. If we're not careful, the only reason we cry in the altar is because we haven't done anything since the last time we cried in the altar. This is not good preaching, is it? This is terrible. This is terrible. <laughs> No, we got to have an altar where we truly make a change. Where we say, I am walking towards hell. But I've decided the devil does not get to have my life. He does not get my death. He does not get my eternity. So I'm turning from sin. And at an altar, he can take away addiction. Somebody needs to hear me right now. I know there are steps that sometimes are needed, but I have met too many who said all of a sudden alcohol tasted like puke to me. I never wanted another cigarette after that. I know it hasn't happened for everyone, but I still believe it can happen. I believe that an altar of repentance where someone says, I believe in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, that he can turn your life as you turn towards heaven. Oh, if you believe in that, I want you to rejoice in the power of the altar. Woo! I believe in the power of the altar. He can turn it. He can turn you. But he won't turn you if you won't turn yourself. Feel a little, little vain right here, right now. He is able to do the work, but it'll take an altar. It'll take an altar. Genuine repentance will lead you forward. It will lead you forward.
It'll bring you to a place where the chains that we were singing about and the binding that we were playing about will come off you. When the sacrifice of your life comes in contact with that spotless lamb. And so the power is that transparency, but the pattern is that repentance. It is that turning. It is that about faith. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people. It is the largest two-letter word in text. Yeah, well, repentance has to be personal. Yes, it does. If these people in my neighborhood, if they're going to have anything from God, then they're going to have to make up their mind. They are. But he said, if my people will humble themselves and they will pray and they will seek my face and if they, this seems like a dichotomy to me in Scripture, as an oxymoron almost as it were, when he says, if my people will turn, God is not confused with our fickle nature. He knows we're up and down. If you're ever feeling bad about yourself, read about the children of Israel. You will feel like you are a tremendous follower of God. <laughs> but he said, if my people, if they'll humble themselves and pray, if they'll turn from their wicked ways, here he said it, if they'll seek my face. He said, I hear from heaven. I'll forgive sin. I'll even heal their land. You know what I'm praying for? As I believe God is bringing all of this to a culmination. I believe as his time is rapidly approaching, I think he's looking to the church and he's saying, pray, pray, pray. Seek my face. Turn from your way. You know what I think he's saying? I think he's saying quit squabbling about politics and seek my face. I think he's saying quit getting caught up in the pandemic and seek my face. Make the altar real because I will forgive sin and I will heal the land. Stand, stand with me. It's the largest piece of furniture, Brother Ross, in the whole, in the whole spot. Square footage of the altar. Square footage of the altar. You could put every other piece of furniture on it. And boy, doesn't that preach. Because I don't want pieces of furniture that were built for his glory that can't fit on an altar. Because this, this minus an altar might as well be somewhere in downtown New York You want to strum those, those strings? You want to play those like David on a lyre before the Lord? You want to do that? That with polish minus an altar means nothing. Nothing. But if we can get the, if we can get the altar to be the prerequisite. Let me skip ahead. I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to jump down a few weeks and I'm going to regret it when I get there. But I'm going to tell you right now. We're working towards the altar of incense, which stands in front of the veil, which was his body. 
<laughs> That's an inside thing. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. Listen to me. We work towards it. We get to the veil. Right before the veil, the altar of incense. Right? It's celebration. It's praise. But the only way this worked was how? Coals from off the altar. A really good altar leading to a really good praise. But we think if we have really good praise, we can get a really good altar. That is not the pattern. <laughs> that is not the pattern. The pattern is that an altar brings praise. An altar brings celebration. An altar brings you to a place where you can get before the veil. We've got great music. We don't need better music. We need bigger altars. We need bigger altars. The size of your altar tells me the size of your commitment. Uh-huh. But I'm going to tell you, it's not really about me. The size of your altar tells him the size of your seriousness. If you're in this house today and you believe what I'm saying and you believe that there is power in repentance and that he is still real and that he is faithful and just to forgive. If you believe that, I want you to lift your hands towards heaven. And I want you to pray with me right now that the altar would be real in every life that is here.